Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 16 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 96 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended September 15th, 2018. Welcome. I know it sounds trite, but a lot happened this week. A lot of big stories and a lot of stories that therefore got buried in very little attention. We're going to be covering them all. There were especially a lot of stories that we're going to be talking about this week in everyday racism relating to refugees and immigrants and the cruelty of the Trump regime. And then this week, increasingly, Trump stands alone. We're going to be talking about reporting that indicates his sense of betrayal, from current and former officials for speaking to Bob Woodward about his book that came out this week, as well as Trump's still focus on the synonymous Times op-ed last week has left him outraged and paranoid. And then this week, the rigged witch hunt hoax caught another witch. Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, is cooperating adding to the long list of people close to Trump in the past who are either cooperating or have been granted immunity, including his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, his bookkeeper, Rick Gates, who was the deputy campaign manager to Manafort, Papadopoulos, the coffee boy, and of course, Michael Flynn, who is his former NSA. We're going to talk this week, even by Trump standards, his behavior this week was unbalanced and alarming. We're going to be talking about what he did on the anniversary of 9-11, as well as his really odd and blatant lie remarks about Puerto Rico and the deaths there in the lead up to Hurricane Florence, which hit this week. We're also going to be talking about some things related to his regime, his FEMA director of all weeks, trouble there, And Brett Kavanaugh hit a snag in his potential road to becoming a Supreme Court justice. So let's get right into it because a lot happened this week and people have been tweeting at me. I missed so much because I was focused on the storm. We're going to hit all the high notes. Before we get into it, just I'm going to start off each week with a few things just to put things in perspective. Um, 20 months now into office. Just half of the positions considered key roles in the executive branch have been filled. That's 364 out of 705. And more than one in five positions don't even have a nominee yet. So when we talk about FEMA or any of these other federal agencies and their readiness to deal with the problems their agencies are meant to staff, are staffed up for, a lot of these roles, half these roles are not filled, leadership roles. On Monday, a CNN poll found that Trump's approval rating has fallen six points from the last month to 36%. Of note, his approval among independents has fallen from 47% to 31%, which is a new low. Also on Monday, a Quinnipiac poll found voters give Trump his lowest grade for honesty since he was elected, saying 60-32% that he is not honest. Trump also got low grades on most character traits. So then you won't be surprised why we don't find him honest 
This week, Trump hit a new record. On Thursday, the Washington Post, which has been tracking Trump's false and misleading statements, said he surpassed 5,000. In the past nine days, and this was as of Thursday, Trump averaged 32 false or misleading claims per day. And also back to the theme of unstaffed positions, the Washington Post also reported that top civil servants are leaving the Trump regime at a record clip. In fiscal 2017, 18.6% of senior executive members left the government. Experts warn of a future crisis from leadership drain. So that sets the table for what I want to talk about next, which is what is happening within his regime and the impact on America, the section we call everyday racism. This is the longest list um, of items in that category since we started doing the podcast. I'm going to hit on some of the highlights. On Saturday at the second annual Mother of All Rallies at the National Mall, billed as an all-day event with a goal, quote, to preserve and protect American culture, approximately 300 people showed up. The Southern Poverty Law Center reported that the event headlined conspiracy theorists, hate groups, and the Proud Bo- like the Proud Boys and American Guard, and famous alt-right names like Mike Mershkeely and Joey Gibson. So these people are in the light of day now. The Guardian reported Trump ordered 25 million earmarked for the care of Palestinians in the East Jerusalem hospitals to be redirected to, quote, high priority projects elsewhere, according to a State Department official. And here's the sneaky stuff that goes on week by week that we just miss, but is important. Republicans in the House passed a bill to reclassify dozens of federal crimes, such as burglary, fleeing, and coercion through fraud as crimes of violence, making them deportable offenses under immigration law. The Washington Post reported thousands of Vietnamese in the U.S. faced deportation after the Trump regime reinterpreted a 2008 agreement reached by W. Bush in Vietnam, a policy that has been shaped by senior advisor Stephen Miller, which could impact 8,000 Vietnamese who have green cards but never became U.S. citizens. At least 57 people who arrived before 1995 were in ICE detention in mid-June, and 11 have already been deported, again, to a country they have not lived in. Reuters reports that despite a record high of 68.5 million forcibly displaced people worldwide, the Trump regime is on track to take in roughly 22,000 refugees, a quarter of the number admitted under Obama in 2016. The Trump regime set the 2018 annual refugee ceiling at 45,000, the lowest number since the program was established in 1980. The 22,000 admitted is the fewest in four decades. The regime has extended the strictest type of vetting to women as well as men from 11 countries, mostly in the Middle East and Africa, and reduced the number of officials conducting refugee interviews from 155 to 100. Under the new policies, the percentage of refugees who are Muslims is now a third of what it was two years ago while the percentage who are European have tripled. So that's out of the lower number, the 22,000, we're taking white people from Europe instead. 
Current and former officials say the new policy is being driven by a small core, including Stephen Miller, who we've spoken about, Chief of Staff John Kelly, and Gene Hamilton, a former security advisor at the Department of Homeland Security. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported, despite reunification of most of the children separated under Trump's zero tolerance policy, the number of migrant children in detention has quietly shot up by more than fivefold. According to data obtained by the Times, children in federally contracted shelters for migrant children reached a total of 12,800 this month, up from 2,400 such children in May 2017. Federal shelters are at or near capacity. On Tuesday, the Trump regime said it would triple the size of temporary tent cities like the one in Tornillo, Texas, that can house up to 30 800 children. We're going to talk about where that money is coming from later in the podcast. The Guardian reported conditions at detention centers at the U.S. border have grown only grimmer since Trump's zero tolerance policy was first put in place. Detention centers are overcrowded and unhygienic. Migrants are prone to outbreaks of vomiting, diarrhea, respiratory infections, and other communicable diseases. Basics like food and water are inadequate. In their cages, as the migrants call them, translation for icebox, they call them jereles, excuse me, I'm not good with Spanish, uh, but they call them iceboxes. The migrants are taunted and threatened by guards with turning the temperature down further. Guards laugh at migrants and say, why didn't you stay in your country? And then this is a, a, a particular case that drew a lot of attention that I tweeted about. The Detroit Free Press reported ICE plans to deport Francis Nwana, a 48-year-old who is deaf and has cognitive disabilities, back to Nigeria. Several years ago, his visa was not renewed as he was being moved in foster care. Immigrant advocates who say deporting him would be a virtual death sentence given his severe disabilities have raised concerns with ICE and are pushing to prevent his deportation. He has been in the United States since he is 13. ICE has September 21st as a date to make a decision. The Southern Poverty Law Center reported acting ICE director, Ronald Vitiello, attended an annual media event for an anti-immigrant hate group, oh perfect, Uh, called FAIR, which stands for Federation for American Immigration Reform. On Monday, Ben Zayn, the mayor of Louisiana, banned local booster clubs from purchasing Nike apparel for use at public recreation facilities. Um, Also this week, two small colleges said they would stop using Nike logos on their uniforms. Washington Post reported the director of a library in West Virginia said it will not stock Bob Woodward's book. Upon questions from the Washington Post, the trustees of the library later reversed. On Friday, the Texas State Board of Education voted to eliminate mention of Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller from their state's history curriculum as part of an effort to, quote, streamline the curriculum in public schools. Washington Post reported Rob DeSantis, the GOP candidate for governor in Florida, spoke four times at a conference hosted by David Horowitz, an activist who has said African-Americans owe their freedom to white people. 
Valerie Scoggin, a high school math teacher in Louisiana, wrote in a racist Facebook post, go back to Africa, quit acting like animals, and cease voting for handouts and pay taxes. She was later fired. In an online NRA TV program mocking additions to of adding females and international characters to the popular children's television show, Thomas and Friends, based on Thomas the Tank Engine, host Dana Lush on that NRA TV featured a video of trains in KKK white hoods. Sure. On Wednesday, in an op-ed by Barbara Reese, who led construction at the Trump Organization, Reese claimed Trump ordered an architect not to include Braille in Trump Tower elevator panels. According to Reese, when the architect told Trump, including Braille as federal law, Trump responded, get rid of the expletive Braille. No blind people are going to live in Trump Tower. On Wednesday, Eric Trump told Fox and Friends that Woodward's wrote the book to, quote, make three extra shekels. Shekels is a term used by white nationalists to describe money tainted by Jewish influence. On Friday, when asked on Morning Joe how he would win back, back black voters, given his racist past, Mississippi State Senator Chris McDaniel said, quote, after a hundred years of begging for federal government scraps, where are you today? Ugh. And then just one final point, patient advocacy groups filed a lawsuit against the Trump regime's expansion of bare bones short-term health plans, which they said undermined the stability of the Affordable Care Act. And a woman in Kansas, just following up to the story in, on Texas a few weeks ago, was told by U.S. passport agency out of Houston that her birth certificate was not enough to prove citizenship. After her senator intervened, the matter was corrected. So again, that's our longest section yet and focus on all of the changes that are happening subtly and not so subtly to immigrants and refugee programs because our media has spent a lot less time on those with all the other things going on in recent weeks. Now I wanna talk about corruption and incompetence within the Trump regime. A lot of stories on that this week as well that got very little coverage. The Washington Post reported that Trump is shrinking the Environmental Protection Agency. Since he took office, nearly 1,600 workers have left, while fewer than 400 have been hired, bringing staff levels down to levels not seen since the Reagan administration. Among those who have resigned or retired include some of the EPA's most experienced veterans, as well as young environmental experts who would have replaced them, causing concern about a brain drain at the agency. On Monday, the New York Times reported the Trump regime is taking its third major step this year to roll back federal efforts to fight climate change, making it easier for energy energy companies to release methane into the atmosphere. The EPA will propose weakening an Obama-era requirement that companies monitor and repair methane links, and the Interior Department will repeal restrictions on venting and burning methane. This third step, in addition to steps we've had in prior podcasts, the weakening of rules on carbon dioxide from vehicle tailpipes back in July and coal-fired power plants in August represent the dismantling of the foundation of what the U.S. effort had been to rein in global warming. And we didn't even hear about it this week, folks. That's the kind of weeks we're having. 
On Monday, the Congressional Budget Office issued its monthly review for August 2018, which showed the federal deficit had grown by $222 billion in the first 11 months of fiscal year 2018. That's a 33% increase, reaching a record $895 billion. The CBO said the increase was due mostly to the new Republican tax law and Congress decisions to increase spending. Remember how the Republicans were supposed to be the great stewards of our economy and keeping down the budget, excuse me, down the deficit. The CBO also said the deficit will approach $1 trillion by the end of fiscal year 2019. On Wednesday, a Washington federal court judge ruled against Betsy DeVos's Department of Education, saying the department's postponement of the Obama-era borrower defense rule was procedurally improper. The lawsuit was brought by 19 states in the District of Columbia and accused DeVos of wrongly delaying implementation of regulations to protect students who took out loans to attend college from predatory practices. Because why would we want to protect students? Anyway, this is, you know, again, as I've always said, the legislative branch is doing nothing to stop Trump. It's only the judicial branch now and then that steps in and protects us from the rights and protections being taken away. Trump's Interior Department is quietly moving to lease hundreds of thousands of acres of public land to energy companies for commercial purposes, such as mining for minerals and drilling for oil and gas. According to data compiled by environmental groups, the Bureau of Land Management will put 2.9 million acres in New Mexico, Colorado, and Arizona up for potential lease in the next four months. NBC News reported next Thursday, FEMA will do its first test of the alert system, which would allow Trump to send messages to most US cell phones. More than 100 mobile carriers are participating on Thursday. The emergency alert system is a national public warning system that allows the president to address the nation during a national emergency. The test message will have a header that reads, quote, presidential alert. So, of course, a lot of people are wondering why we suddenly need to test this system. Couldn't have anything to do with the Mueller probe and the fact that everybody in Trump's inner circle is cooperating. Anyways, something to keep your eye on. Um, on Monday, and since Obama, we reported last week, was back on the national political scene and has been getting under Trump's skin, Trump spent the early part of the week going after the economy, saying what a great job he had done and what a terrible job Obama has done, something he continued all week. But on Monday, the White House economist Kevin Hassett had to, when asked during a press briefing, admit that Trump's tweet that the gross domestic product was the highest in over 100 years was not actually true saying it was the highest in 10 years. So just take a little pause for some good news. Um, Talking about um, this year being, NBC News reported a record-breaking year for women running for office. 100 women could be elected in 2018 to the House as 30 to 40 new women are poised to win. The increase is driven exclusively by Democrats as the record-breaking 50% of of their new candidates are women. Republicans are actually poised to lose women. The previous record was 24 set in 1992, which was known as the Year of the Woman, in a backlash against Clarence Thomas' Supreme Court confirmation. 
This year is in response to Trump and his policies, but as we're going to talk about towards the end, Kavanaugh could be the next Clarence Thomas ahead of, and could you know make these numbers even more dramatic, uh, ahead of our midterms that are now 52 days away. On Tuesday in New Hampshire, in their primary, Safiya Wazir, a 27-year-old Afghan refugee, won her race with 70% of the votes over a veteran state representative who railed against immigrants, quote, getting everything. On Wednesday, Julie Briskman, who has been in the weekly list, the cyclist who got fired for flipping off Trump in week 52, announced she is running to represent the Algonquin District in the Loudoun County Board of Supervisors in Virginia. On Thursday, in New York's primary, Letitia James became the first Black woman to win a major party statewide nomination, defeating her Democratic opponent for Attorney General. So that's some good news to kind of give us a little break from the rest. Mm. Then on Monday, Woodward's book was coming out, uh, which officially came out Tuesday, but Monday Woodward with the launch of his book, um, Fear, appeared on the Today Show uh, and said some rather shocking things, including, quote, he's never seen an instant when the president is so detached from reality of what's going on. That was very foreboding for what actually happened this week. Woodward claimed his book uh, on Trump's staff believed that he is unhinged and erratic. Woodward said, quote, this has not been treated seriously enough The thing is that Trump did and does jeopardize the real national security. Before the interview on the Today Show on Monday, Woodward did, Trump tweeted, quote, the Woodward book is a joke, just another assault on me, adding, quote, Dems can't stand losing. I'll write the real book. After the interview, Trump tweeted, quote, it is mostly anonymous sources in here. Why would anyone trust you, adding, Bob Woodward is a liar who is like a Dem operative prior to midterms. Some of the things that we learned about this week, Woodward's book claims Trump exploded at his former lawyer, John Dowd, after reading news that Mueller had subpoenaed records from Deutsche Bank. Remember, keep an eye on Deutsche Bank, folks. A lot of strange loans from what was known as the global laundromat of Russian money to both Trump and Kushner leading up to the election. So you can understand why Trump would be so alarmed. The book also claims in a conversation about federal deficit with Gary Cohn during the transition period, Trump suggested, quote, we should just go and borrow a lot of money, hold it, and then sell it to make money. Oh boy. Cohn reportedly explained to Trump that printing money could lead to inflation and be catastrophic for the economy. Cohn was, quote, astounded at Trump's lack of basic understanding about the federal debt. Vanity Fair reported Trump is bitter over Woodward's book and former allies and employees who betrayed him. He let Cohn and Porter know that he would attack them publicly if they didn't disavow the book. They both did this week, although in muted ways. Trump is reportedly even more fixated on finding the author of the New York Times op-ed, Meetings have been derailed because of Trump's suspicions. Donald Jr. has told people he's worried Trump is not sleeping because of it. The only person Trump trusts outside of his family is Stephen Miller. The op-ed has validated Trump's beliefs, propagated by Miller and Stephen Bannon, that a deep state is out to get him. 
Trump believes there is a coup. Oh boy. So other things that the Trump regime did this week and going back to Russia again, which we're going to spend some time on. Um, the Trump regime said it would close the Palestine, Palestinian Liberation Organization office in Washington, citing the PLO has not taken steps to advance the start of direct and meaningful negotiations with Israel. The State Department also said the closure was, quote, consistent with concerns about Palestinian calls for an investigation of Israel by the International Criminal Court. Neither Israel or the U.S. recognize the ICC. On Monday, National Security Advisor John Bolton said if the ICC pursues charges against Americans over alleged war crimes committed in Afghanistan, those involved will be banned from traveling to the U.S. He also threatened to pull out of the ICC in total, which would add to the long list, including the Paris Climate Accord, our former uh, agreement with Iran to reduce nuclear weapons, uh, and more recently, the Human Rights Office of the UN. So increasingly, we are becoming isolated. But that didn't stop Rick Perry from this week from flying over to Moscow to meet with the Russian energy minister. Reuters reported that on Sunday that he would be visiting. Uh, of course, there was little coverage from U.S. media. I didn't see any of the majors reporting on his meeting, just the Washington Examiner, something to the effect that McPerry had castigated his Russian counterpart, which good for him about trying to hack our electric grid, which having Rick Perry in charge of our electric grid makes me feel a whole lot better. That and the fact that Trump hasn't acknowledged Russian interference, but hey. On Tuesday, Russia held Vostok 2018, its largest military drills since 1981, when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated president at the time of heightened tensions between West and Russia. So this will be their biggest test of since the Reagan era, we're back to the Reagan era again. On Tuesday, NBC News reported that U.S. intelligence agencies believe Russia is a main suspect in the mysterious attack that led to brain injuries of U.S. diplomats in Cuba and China. BuzzFeed reported on suspicious money transfers between the first coming 11 days after the June 9th Trump Tower meeting and then shortly after Trump's election victory. Um, these were wire transfers done by Aras Aragalov, who wired $19.5 million to an account in New York 11 days after the June 9th Trump Tower meeting, which he was instrumental in helping to put together. And then shortly after the election, there were a series of transactions totaling $1.2 million from a bank in Russia to an account in New Jersey controlled by his son, Emin. Dutch newspapers reported that two Russian spies who had been plotting a cyber attack from the Netherlands on a Swiss defense lab, which was analyzing the nerve agent used in Britain, uh, were detained and expelled out of the Netherlands. Swiss authorities said the investigation began in March into, quote, suspicion of political espionage and led to a joint investigation between Swiss, Dutch, and British intelligence services. The attempted attack is the latest example of the Kremlin waging a sophisticated and unconventional campaign to work its will abroad and to undermine adversaries and their alliances. 
And so in the opening, we had talked about how even by Trump standards this week, he was unusually erratic in his behavior, really alarming. I want to talk about Tuesday, the solemn anniversary of 9-11 and um, a day for myself. On a personal note, I, I happened to fly this year to Alabama for a couple of events, and I've never flown before on 9-11 since 2011. Um, the airport was empty. This is, again, such an important day for our country, such a solemn day for our country, and such a turning point and so important in so many ways. So, of course, we would expect leadership from the person who is meant to be leading our country. But no, I'm going to read you what happened because I'm glad to have it recorded, and this week's photo is from that day that goes with the weekly list. Trump started the day with a series of tweets rehashing reports on Fox Business Network and Fox News while he traveled to the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The topic of Trump's morning tweets included new struck page texts and collusion between the FBI and DOJ, the Hillary campaign, and Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder. Trump then retweeted a 9-11 retweeted post by social media director Dan Scavino and something on Hurricane Florence before resuming in a series of tweets attacking his adversaries. Again, this is all in the morning of 9-11. Trump tweeted, you know who's at fault for this more than anyone else, Comey, and about, quote, crazy Maxine Waters. And he quoted Lou Dobbs saying, Russian collusion was just an excuse by the Democrats. Photos of Trump fist pumping, that's the photo with week 96, as he exited the airplane in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and walked towards supporters drew national attention and condemnation for being inappropriate for the solemn day by many. At the Shanksville Memorial site, where Trump was giving a speech, he walked up to the podium while pointing at people in the crowd and mouthing the words, thank you, as they clapped for him. He thinks he's doing a campaign rally, how neat. Later Tuesday, in remarks in the Oval Office, Trump said his regime's response to Hurricane Maria was, quote, an incredible unsung success and falsely claimed Puerto Rico had virtually no electricity before the storm. When asked about Hurricane Florence approaching, Trump said his regime was, quote, as ready as anyone has ever been and warned that the storm would be, quote, tremendously big and tremendously wet. Trump continued his use of superlatives, saying Hurricane Florence, quote, many people are now saying this is the worst storm hurricane they have ever seen. On Tuesday, BuzzFeed reported that Trump's FEMA received 2,431 requests for funeral assistance from Puerto Ricans related to the hurricane that they've had last year, Hurricane Maria, and approved just 75 or 3%. In a letter, FEMA Director Long cited Puerto Rico had to provide a death, Puerto Ricans had to provide a death certificate or letter from a governmental official that clearly indicates the death was attributed to the emergency or disaster. We're going to be talking more about that next. On Wednesday, Jeff Merkley, Senator from Oregon, revealed on the Rachel Maddow show that the Trump regime redirected $9.8 million from FEMA to ICE for detention and removal months before hurricane season is set to begin. The transfer of fund, funds was approved by the Republican chairs 
of the House and Senate Homeland Security Appropriations Subcommittee, but not the rest of the subcommittee members. Director Long claimed that none of the money came from disaster relief funds. However, the money did come from response and recovery, preparedness and protection, and mission support operations, which does sound, in fact, a lot like disaster relief funds. (sighs) On Thursday, NBC News reported that the Department of Homeland Security actually transferred $169 million from other agencies to ICE for the detention and removal of migrants this year. Remember the story that we talked about early in the podcast from the New York Times, that the number of children uh, was up, has grown fivefold to 12,800 and they're running out of places to put them? Well, no problem. We're taking money from FEMA and other federal agencies to cover that cost. According to documents sent to Congress by DHS, many of the transfers came from key national security programs including Domestic Nuclear Detection Office, because who needs to detect nuclear bombs, the U.S. Coast Guard, FEMA, and several other TSA programs. DHS also transferred $33 million from other ICE programs to pay for detention and removal, bringing the total to $202 million transferred in to FEMA. Okay, so that was Tuesday, but... You would think on Wednesday, maybe Trump had a good night's sleep. Maybe he calmed down and he was going to come back to reality a little. But no, on Wednesday, Trump woke up and defended his regime's response to past hurricanes. He tweeted, quote, we got A pluses for our recent hurricane work in Texas and Florida and did an unappreciated job in Puerto Rico. Trump also blamed the response in Puerto Rico to it being, quote, an inaccessible island with very poor electricity and a totally incompetent mayor of San Juan, referring to his adversary, San Juan Mayor Carmen Ulez Cruz. In a series of tweets, Trump again used hyperbole, saying, quote, Hurricane Florence is looking even bigger than anticipated. On Thursday, and not to diminish Florence because it was not nothing, as of the end of this week, 11 people were dead. But it was certainly not the biggest, and it was certainly not hyperbolic, not to diminish anything that happened. But, you know, for Trump, everything is the biggest and the greatest. On Thursday, Trump continued. He said he, he lied. He said Trump on Thursday, Trump lied about the deaths in Puerto Rico, tweeting 3000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had said anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. Instead, Trump blamed the Democrats, tweeting, This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible, claiming, quote, I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. Two data points that we've mentioned in the podcast. One is the report done. Um, that was commissioned by the government of Puerto Rico that showed 2,975 people estimated dead in Puerto Rico. That has now been accepted as the official count. And another report study done by Harvard scientists and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that estimated roughly 4,600. So it's definitely not 6 to 18, and it's certainly not the Democrats. San Juan Mayor Carmen Ulez Cruz tweeted, quote, This is what denial following neglect looks like. Mr. Prez is in the real world. People died on your watch, adding in capital letters, your lack of respect is appalling. 
I think that's how many people in the country felt. But Trump dug in his heels further on Friday. He continued to attack the Puerto Rican death toll, quoting Geraldo Rivera in a tweet. 70% of the power was out before the storm and it's a political agenda couched in the nice language of journalism. Trump also tweeted quotes by Ed Rollins, who complimented him on Puerto Rico as an extraordinary job, and Lou Dobbs, the people of Puerto Rico have one of the most corrupt governments in our country. On Friday evening, as Hurricane Florence continued to batter the Carolinas, Trump again tweeted about Puerto Rico death counts in capital letters, 50 times last original number, no way, exclamation point. Trump closed out Friday tweeting that the, quote, fake news media did not cover when Obama said there were 57 states in 2018, which, of course, is false. <sighs> okay, so we talked a little bit about FEMA director Brock Long, who was in the thick of things this week, in addition to his transferring money out of his own agency to help fund internment camps for migrant children. On Thursday, Politico reported that FEMA Director Long is under investigation by the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General into whether he misused government vehicles during his commutes. The Inspector General's interest was drawn after one of the vehicles used by Long for trips back home to Hickory, North Carolina. On a weekend, a black suburban was involved in an accident. Long has also reportedly been clashing in recent weeks with his boss, Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen, over his travel logs as the hurricane approaches. She confronted him at a meeting in late August. On Friday, the Wall Street Journal reported, as Hurricane Florence was forming in the Atlantic, senior Trump officials were considering replacing Long amid allegations he misused resources. Adding to the Politico story, um, the Washington Post, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal reported that DHS inspectors found that Long, who was under surveillance, often left FEMA headquarters on Thursday and traveled home with a caravan of federal workers who stayed in nearby hotels for the long weekend. The inspector general is also reviewing communications between Long and a FEMA contractor that appear to include discussions about future employment. What could go wrong? I'm betting you 10 bucks though, when we find out who gets the contracts to fix what happened in the Carolinas, the person that Long wants to go work for is gonna be one of them. Secretary Nielsen brought Long's details to the Inspector General's preliminary findings to Long and asked him to resign if the allegations are true. So that story continues into next week. And now, with all this going on, another quiet week in America on Friday. Um, first, it started off, we, we, there was a lot of buildup about Manafort and starting on Wednesday with ABC News reporting that he had been in ongoing negotiations with Mueller's team over a potential plea agreement, but no one really believed it was coming. First, on Friday, we learned, before I get into the Manafort story, that CNN reported the federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York are considering criminal charges against a former Obama White House counsel, Greg Craig, for failing to register as a foreign agent. Craig worked for Skadden Arps, which if you'll recall in an earlier week's list, Alex Vanderswein, who's already served jail time, also had worked for Skadden and was involved with Paul Manafort in drafting a report that then was used in the case of Craig to market to Congress 
before one of the political adversaries of a client, a Ukrainian client that Manafort was representing. But of note here, this is somebody who was an employee of the Obama White House. So the concept that um, the Mueller probe has been uniquely used to target Republicans, that falls away with this story. Um, also of note, this was farmed out to the Southern District of New York by Mueller's team, similar to what they did with the Cohen investigation. So as we approached um, what was going to happen Friday on the Manafort after the ABC News that he was in talks, and this is one of the reasons I really use Rudy Giuliani has, you know, very sparingly in the podcast, because I think he's just mostly a spinning top out on his own. But to give you another example of that, on Thursday, Rudy Giuliani confirmed Manafort and Trump have a joint defense agreement that allows sharing of confidential information and that Trump's lawyers and Manafort's lawyers have been in regular contact. Giuliani also told Politico that he sees no danger for Trump from a Manafort plea deal, saying there's no fear that Paul Manafort would cooperate. This is Thursday, Rudy Giuliani. Um, and we have long evaluated him as an honorable man. That's Thursday. And believe me, you're not going to be hearing those terms again. On Friday, in a stunning development, Manafort agreed to cooperate in the Mueller probe, pleading guilty and promising to tell the government about his participation in and knowledge of all criminal activities. Court documents revealed that Manafort was talking in detail with Mueller's team as early as Monday, and that Manafort made multiple statements and a written proffer as the two sides worked towards a deal. So in other words, Mueller has a good sense of what He's got the goods. Manafort said his Ukraine work included shaping U.S. perception of Yanukovych and his pro-Russia party. He admitted he didn't register as a foreign agent and that he misled federal investigators about his work. Manafort also pleaded guilty to cheating the IRS out of $15 million and lying repeatedly to try to cover his tracks. Manafort faces as much as 11 additional years in prison on top of what he was found in his first trial and fines of $250,000 per count based on his plea. As part of the plea, Manafort will forfeit a host of his assets, including his condo at Trump Tower uh, for a total of roughly $22 million in assets. He'll also return to prison, that's notable, while he cooperates. So he's not out free, he's back to prison. Also of interest, Manafort has agreed to meet with law enforcement. So it's not just Mueller's team. Anybody who wants to speak to him can speak to him in law enforcement. And he's agreed to do so without the presence of his counsel. And he's agreed to cooperate, quote, fully and truthfully. If he complies, he stands to have years shaved off his prison sentence, perhaps serving no jail time, and to have his family hold on to some property. Both cases brought against Manafort by the special counsel stem from his work in Ukraine. Manafort may provide key information on the June 9th Trump Tower meeting, which he attended, as well as changes in the RNC platform when he was campaign chairman. In reaction to his cooperating, Ruli Giuliani said, quote, once again, an investigation has concluded with a plea having nothing to do with President Trump or the Trump campaign. The reason the president did nothing wrong. And shortly after that, Sarah Sanders said in a statement, this has absolutely nothing to do with Trump or his victorious 2016 presidential campaign. 
However, Alan Dershowitz, who undoubtedly has been a Trump ally, told MSNBC the plea deal is a big win for Mueller, saying it potentially opens up lots of doors that probably wouldn't have been opened before. Dershowitz also said the presidential pardon now is off the table, saying that if Manafort is given a pardon, then he can't take the Fifth Amendment and would have to testify and would be called in front of a grand jury anyway. And then as if that wasn't enough in one day, on Friday, Vanity Fair reported it has become common knowledge among close friends of Michael Cohen that he too is talking to Mueller's team and is cooperating. So that was fun. That was all happening towards the end of the week. And then on Saturday, the New York Times reported that Trump's relationship with Defense Secretary Mattis has frayed. By the way, folks, that's my bet for the writer of the New York op-ed, but we shall see. Trump is weary of comparisons to Mattis as the adult. I, okay, I just have to step back and these are the rationales of why he wants to get rid of him. Okay, so now I'm going to read it again. This is quoting from the New York Times. Trump is weary of comparison to Mattis as the adult in the room and increasingly concerned that Mattis is a Democrat at heart. Officials say that Trump has largely tuned out his national security aides and feels he's more confident in doing it himself. Trump has balked, excuse me, Mattis has balked at some of Trump's requests and is protective of the military being not being used for political purposes, probably like the military parade. Officials say Trump may fire Mattis, which would be a significant departure given that foreign allies and adversaries alike, as well as the U.S. national security establishment, view Mattis as the one thing standing between Trump and global tumult. In the article, they discuss several times where Mattis has been able to explain things to Trump and calm him down. That could have been uh, caused great harm to our national security. So with all this happening, with Manafort cooperating, with Trump spending four days denying the Puerto Rican death count and fighting everybody on facts, on Saturday, the White House issued a lid for the day, meaning no planned news events or presidential movements. Trump did not tweet through noon. Our list goes noon to noon, Saturday to Saturday. And his golf game did not golf on Saturday, which is very atypical. I just want to close off with a few odds and ends from this week. One is that Trump this week canceled a planned November visit to Ireland to visit his golf course as part of a trip to Europe for Armistice Day celebrations. On Wednesday, apparently it came out, this is all through the Irish media, um, that while Trump was canceling, he had not actually told Ireland he was coming. The Irish ambassador to the U.S. said he had not been informed of the trip. And then on Wednesday, Independent UK reported that Trump canceled the trip to Ireland because massive protests had been planned to greet him. And finally, as we closed out the week, and we're going to be doing a lot more about this next week. Again, this is Saturday to Saturday. On Thursday, a bitter fight over Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation plunged into chaos as Senator Dianne Feinstein disclosed that she referred a letter that described alleged sexual misconduct involving Kavanaugh in high school to the FBI. On Friday, The New Yorker, Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer got a copy of that letter and made excerpts of it public or made it public and more of this you know, story was starting to come out including anita hill coming out and making a statement that called on federal government to implement a fair and neutral way 
to investigate sexual misconduct, saying she has seen firsthand what happens when such a process is weaponized against an accuser. So there's going to be a lot more about that coming in episode 17. But until then, um, grab some popcorn and champagne because I'm not sure what's happening next, but there's a whole lot of people cooperating. Until we chat again, um, please spread the word about this podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. You can rate it on Google Play um, or on Apple iTunes and leave um, a review. And until next week, have a great one. We'll talk soon.